Running away from people now, 20, 10, and gone. Moniel, 67-yard touchdown run. I've got reporters' <laughs> notebooks older than Seth. Fati was always soft. Can't win on the road, they say. <laughs> DeVito pop pass end zone. Touchdown and the ball game. DeVito in relief wins it for the Orange. This is Orange Nation brought to you by Charles Heating and Air Conditioning with Stephen Fonte and Seth Goldberg. Good afternoon, everyone. Glad to have you with us alongside Seth Goldberg. I'm Stephen Fonte as we welcome you into a Tuesday edition of Orange Nation. A couple of guests lined up for you. We'll hear from SU Assistant Coach, Coach Adrian Autry coming up at 1230 as we do every Tuesday. And then at the top of hour number two, Stephen Bailey from Syracuse.com will be on as we talk some Q's football. The Orange with a couple of new coordinators. We touched on that Yesterday, plus your phone calls, welcome at any time, 315-437-7644. And how about this, Seth? I was actually correct about a prediction. You were? I said LSU by double digits. I didn't want to be right. I was right. That team is a juggernaut. And and now the, the conversation today, it, it was going to go one way or the other, right? It was going to be either Trevor Lawrence is the best college quarterback of all time or Joe Burrow had the best season of all time for a college quarterback. And in terms of the programs, it was going to be Clemson had the best two-year run of anyone of all time, or now we're talking about LSU potentially having the best season. Was this the best college football team of all time? So that is the narrative today. Yeah, I mean, the narrative was going to go one of two ways, as, as you laid out. I mean, looking at Clemson and what they did, forget just the two-year run. How about how about now what's been a four-year run where where it could have been three titles in four years and, and the teams that they beat to get there and, and everything that they did, which is just remarkable and outstanding. Uh, but you look at LSU and what this team has done, and they they really are one of the best teams that, that has ha- – this is one of the best single seasons in college football history. You, you know, you, you look at what their schedule was preseason. They went over the course of this year – and beat all four of the preseason top four teams in the AP poll. First time it's ever happened. That, right. That has never happened before. And some of the teams that they beat along the way, and, and um, you know, I, I know that ranking at the time does not matter, and, and I'm the first one to, ta- to say that and to acknowledge that. They beat a whole bunch of teams that were ranked at the time, starting with, with playing Texas in Week 1 and going all the way through this this uh, playoff where they absolutely dismantled Oklahoma. It didn't really matter that they fell behind early against Clemson. Um, they, they just had the offensive firepower to get the job done, and their defense is, is really good, and it it made Trevor Lawrence really uncomfortable last night. I mean, that was the worst game Trevor Lawrence has played in yeah, it's the first game he's ever lost. Not a coincidence. Worst game he played, they they actually lose. And, and you're right, LSU made him uncomfortable. And that's why I said that on the show yesterday, that I, I, I thought both these offenses were going to score, and I thought it would come down to which defense performed better. And LSU's defense obviously performed better. There are two statistics, if you will, or two nuggets about this, this season and this team that stand out to me about LSU. And, and you've kind of touched on them both right there. But the fact that they beat... Number one, number two, number three, number four in the country. First time that's ever happened. Not only did they beat those four teams, they beat them by an average of 21 points. 
Think about that for a second. An average of Crash three time. touchdowns over the, you know, arguably the four best teams in the country. And then the other nugget that, that stands out about this team um, is that they went out and they knocked off seven top ten opponents over the course of the season. So when you hear the question, is this the greatest college football team of all time? You know, initially I was uncomfortable with that question because you think, well, it's recency bias, and you know that's a bold statement to say anybody is the best of all time. I had the same, I had the exact same thought. I was like, that's kind of recency bias, isn't it? I but mean, then I mean, those Matt Leiner, right, Reggie Bush teams right. were amazing. That that uh, Nebraska, you know, I'm, I'm sure teams, the Nebraska Oklahoma teams, teams, the Miami teams from before I was really watching college football and before I was born are probably the you know those great teams. Um, you know, go back to Notre Dame and Army and, sure. and all the the great teams of college football. Like that's saying a lot to say that this team is the greatest of all time. Obviously, they've got one thing that that only one other team has, and that is going fifteen and zero. Uh, you know, that's something that's going to happen here a little bit more often now that you have a potential to play fifteen games. But so far, it's just them and Clemson from last year that have done it, that have gone fifteen and zero. Well, and we know that the ACC is not the SEC, and the no. schedule that LSU played this year was not the schedule that Clemson played last year. And again, just the way they did it, the way they dominated everyone. You go back to the semifinal game. I mean, they could have name the score against Oklahoma. I mean, they, they essentially did, but I mean, you know, they scored 63 points. They could have scored, you know, 80 plus points if they At wanted least. to. It, it felt like. Um, and then last night against the best program in the country, you know, LSU is the best team in the country right now, right now, but Clemson is the best program in the country. They put up over 600 total yards, 628 yards last night. And again, kind of took their foot off the gas pedal in the final half of that last quarter. You know, they they put up 42 points. They they probably could have gotten the 50s if it was a shootout and they had to. I mean, they ran the ball a lot in that fourth quarter to kind of kill some time. And and Hilaire took a couple of knees and yeah. slid down a couple of times and tried to waste some more clock. Yes, they they tried to shorten that game at the end because they knew that in the back of their mind you still have a quarterback, three receivers, and a running back who are going to the NFL. And then that at any point they can go put points on the board. You know, it's it's strange to say, but I, I thought that a huge turning point in the game, and this is not the turning point, but a huge moment in the game was the offensive pass interference call. Because I can't help but to wonder what happens if that does not get called? And I I thought for the for the moment that it was in, it was a weak call, whatever. If that doesn't get called though, and you put the score on the board, and you know, it it goes from what, seventeen down to ten. And now it's it's now I a think little eight, game pressure on uh, it. Eight or nine minutes left in the game, and it's a ten point lead. Uh, things could have gotten really interesting, and you could have had you know one of those all-time great endings, and maybe LSU has to get into the fifties to win that game. But obviously, that's not how it went, and LSU you know made the most of it. You you get a team backed up first and fit twenty-five. Uh, you've got to take advantage, and they certainly did. You know, I, I tell you what, I I thought the game was over at halftime when when LSU scored right before the half. I thought, okay, that's it. Um, you know, they're up. 28-17, they get the ball to start the second half. I thought it was game over. And then LSU has to punt on the first drive. Clemson gets it back. Clemson goes down and scores. Clemson goes for two, makes it 28-25. And at that point, I mean, we saw a similar thing happen against Ohio State, right? So I, I thought to myself, huh, Clemson might actually do this. You know, they've got the heart of the champion. They've got Trevor Lawrence. They had momentum on their side. And I thought that, that LSU's ability to go down and then answer that touchdown and extend the lead. All of a sudden, it's three. There's a lot of game pressure. They they went and they answered the call, and and that was, you know, the 
the the final nail in the coffin, if you will, to to Clemson. Once LSU went back up by double figures, I felt like you know, and I, I understand what you're saying. If they make it ten in the fourth quarter, there's some game pressure. I feel like LSU really delivered the nail in the coffin though when they went up 35-25, and then you felt like ah, you know, Clemson that, that was Clemson's chance. They needed to stop. They needed to get the ball back, and and momentum was on their side. And LSU took it right back. That's how I felt too. Um, you know, I I I was talking to some people, you know, talking to friends all night, and and I thought that when I thought that when LSU scored before the half, really, that that was kind of the difference in the game. And and I know that's a, it's a slightly different score that, than what you mentioned, but uh, you go up double digits, you're getting the ball back. It just, you know, you you got killed on it, and they so. Uh, Clemson so nearly got off the field without allowing that touchdown, and then they got into the red zone, and you were like, "Okay, but they're really good in the red zone." Right. Like you're like, "All right, but Clemson's, field Clemson's strength is that they're really good in the red zone, and if you can hold them to a field goal, and it's a six point game going into the half, fine, like that works." Uh, but to get that touchdown there, uh, I, I thought really, really hurt and and really killed them. I, I you know that that ultimately is is I think where the game. Swung and you know obviously LSU just went and did what they had to. They 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 you could you could tell just based on the score box seven twenty one seven seven like it it just kind of slowed down after the half because they didn't need to do anything else. Their their defense had ramped up. Clemson was in such a tough position being behind had to throw all the time. Lawrence just wasn't right from the jump. Um, you know he had that one good drive and then that was about it. And you know, after that, he he just wasn't the same, and he wasn't right. So you put him in an awkward position, and you, you take advantage of it. You look at, at Joe Burrow's final stat line from the season. Completed 76% of his passes. So he was 402 for 527. Completed 76.3% of his passes. Threw for 5,671 yards. 60 touchdowns. 6-0 Six interceptions, four rushing touchdowns. I mean, the, the numbers he put up are insane. Last night was his worst completion percentage game of the year, and it was 63%. Not too bad. What was what was Josh Allen for all of his college career? We joked about it. Was he 54? 52, I think yeah. it was 54%, something like that. Like, jo- like, Joe Burrow's worst completion percentage game of the season is a phenomenal game. That's a borderline record at Syracuse for a season. Yes, 63%. It's probably pretty close. It is. And and it just kind of goes to show how good his season was. Uh, the previous low, by the way, just to, to throw it in perspective, was the, uh, was the game against Utah State. All he did then was complete 71% of his passes for five touchdowns. I just looked up the record because I, I knew Greg Paulus had it. Uh, 67.7% was the, was the school record yeah, when, Joe, when he said Joe in Joe Burrow's worst game is pretty close to that. Pretty close to that. Yeah. He he was pretty good. He have, was pretty good. On on the other side, and this was something that struck me, and maybe I'm crazy for thinking this. Have you ever seen um have you ever seen overthrows kept and tracked the way that they did last night with Trevor Lawrence? <laughs> like I've I've never seen it happen that often that they were like, Oh, we need to keep pounding this number in of He's overthrown receivers 12 times, 13 times, 14 times. Like, Once it becomes a storyline, you keep going back to oh, it. I'm not blaming them for, for doing it. I've, I've just never seen a game like that where somebody's so talented and you're like, oh, he, he's just had open guys and continues to, to miss them. He's allowed to have a bad game, and he had an off game. And I, I think that you know you got to credit the LSU defense to some degree for making him have that off game because we've seen him play so many big games. He's a big game player. We saw him play against L- or, uh, Ohio State, rather. The game was over. I mean, they were 
they were in a ton of trouble. And... They came back. He took that big hit. You know, it, it looked like he was shaking up, and then he got mad, and he took over, and he won him that game. And he's played in so many big games. Uh, he had yet to lose. So I, I don't think this is a case of, you know, sometimes when a when a quarterback plays badly in a big game, it's well, the, you know, the moment was too big, or you know, that that is not the case with Trevor Lawrence. I mean, I, I think a lot of the credit has to go to the LSU defense and not so much blame on Lawrence or on oh, Clemson agree. for that matter. No, I, I agree. I, I thought that it was just um it was just incredible to watch because we hadn't seen that from Trevor Lawrence. Like we had we hadn't seen that game where where he just looked okay. You know, he didn't throw a touchdown pass. Um he, he only completed uh he completed less than fifty percent of his passes. Uh you know he ran for a score, okay, but he, he just didn't look like Trevor Lawrence. He didn't look like the guy who came up to the dome. He didn't look like you know, the guy who played 16 days prior against Ohio State. And that's what we've come to know and expect out of him. You know, you you kind of expect him and Joe Burrow to, to be pretty similar quarterbacks. And uh, to your point, I think a lot of that goes to LSU. It's, it's hard to blame um, anybody on Clemson when you know that they've got three three wide receivers that are going to the NFL, a running back that's going to the NFL. Lawrence, the quarterback, is going to the NFL. That offensive line is just full, full of of legitimate talent. So it's hard to blame the Clemson offense for their struggles. I think that a lot of it just has to go to to LSU and say, wow, that was an, that was an incredible defense that probably got overshadowed given what Burrow and the offense did all season. And this was a situation, Seth, where just okay is not okay. As we were talking about yesterday with the Par with wasn't the enough? No, oh, Par okay. was not good enough to win. See, you get that reference now. I love it. You I haven't get, seen the movie, but I get okay. it. That's okay. You get the reference now. But is it okay if I don't if I have not seen movies and I use the references and you from use the movies, the quote, as long as you fully understand what it means, like yesterday with Rocky Four, when you know the, you, you didn't totally get no, it, but not not, now you know it moving forward. When, you know, going into Russia, watch that movie sometime. Watch Tin Cup sometime. Which one, Rocky Four? Rocky Four and okay. Tin Cup. Okay, watch them both. All right. 315-437-7644. We do have to take a timeout. We'll continue the college football talk on the other side, and then Adrian Autry set to join us at twelve thirty. We're back after this on ESPN Radio. On Twitch, Q Sports Talk and ESPN Radio 97.7 at 100.1. This is Orange Nation with Stephen Fonte and Seth Goldberg. All right, be caller 5 right now at 315-437-7644 for your chance to win a day after the big game office party from Dunkin' Donuts. Be caller 5. You could be the hero of your office. Your office will be registered to win coffee, bagels, and donuts. They'll be delivered by some of your favorite ESPN Syracuse hosts. Your office will run on Dunkin', brought to you by Dunkin' Donuts and ESPN Radio Syracuse. So call her five right now, 315-437-7644, registered for that prize. You were talking during the break, Seth, um, that, that you hosted the Jerry McNamara show last night. Um, he had a lot of positive things to say about Marek and, and the way that he played. He was so important. You know, we talk about the fact Elijah scored 18 and Joe came alive and hit some big shots and, and Buddy, you know, started one for 11 and then finished with 14 and scored the nine points in overtime. Marek really was the unsung hero of this game, in my opinion. Yeah, and I, I thought it was interesting to hear, uh, well, we heard a little bit more from Adrian Autry, but to hear from Jerry last night when you have a little bit more time and, and can dive into some of those things a little bit more. Um, 
you know, he, he kind of said that, that Marek was a, a huge piece of what they wanted to do offensively going into the game. You know, that, that they knew that they could get the ball into his hands and, and allow him to make plays and allow him to uh, be the scorer, be the facilitator, do, do a little bit of everything. And, and you saw early, he got pretty beaten up and he got, he got hit pretty hard. And, you know, it, it probably took a little bit of the wind out of him. But keeping him on the floor that last 20 minutes was so important to what they wanted to do. And, and I thought that one of the more interesting things that, that Jerry said about it was the reaction of Elijah Hughes after, uh, you know, after that fourth foul was picked up, where he just kind of, uh, you know, Jerry said that he, uh, Elijah went over to him and was just like, hey, um, you know, we, we need you on the floor. You know, you, you got to be careful here. We need you on the floor in this game. This game is still close. This game is still within reach. Like, we, we need you out there. And, um, I, I thought that, that was really interesting because um, I don't know, you know, I'm trying to think, but I don't, I don't know what we've heard of Elijah Hughes in that way this year. You know, we've we've obviously seen the steps forward he's taken on the floor, and uh, you know, you you can see him, you know, clearly as a better player. Talking about being a vocal but he's leader, not, but he's not that vocal. He's, you know, he's he he strikes me as somebody who's kind of quiet, soft spoken. You know, talking to him in the locker room, uh, watching him on the floor. To see that he kind of is, is taking charge a little bit, I think, has to be a, a good positive sign for him, you know, moving forward. And, and I don't think it's a coincidence that Marek fouled out of the Virginia Tech game and that was a close loss down the stretch, and Marek was able to stay in the Virginia game and that turned out to be a, a close victory. That that's how important he is. And and as you were saying that, you know, as you and Jerry were talking last night, that that Marek was a big part of the game plan. Again, not a coincidence. That he had five assists, that he led Syracuse in assists in that game, that he had, you know, he had his hand on a, on a, even though he only scored seven points, he had his imprint all over the outcome of that game. 11 rebounds, led Syracuse in that category, five assists, led Syracuse in that category, a whole bunch of two block shots, rebounds. led Syracuse in that category, two steals, tied for team high honors in that category. That, I mean, that is what Marek brings to the table. And a lot of offensive rebounds. Right. You know, that, that really helps and it, it creates extra possessions. And, and in a game that goes to overtime, he, you you need those extra possessions. You know the, those extra possessions turn into points. And you know if if Marek Dolajai and, and his offensive rebounding led to that, uh, you know that that's another positive impact on on the game that that maybe you don't it doesn't jump off uh, the stat page at you. Didn't really translate in this game. They only had four second chance points. What one stat that it's a you know low key important stat that we kind of glossed over. And, and Eric Devendorf actually mentioned it yesterday when we had him in. Uh, and I can't remember if he said it on the air or not. He might have said it during the break. But the fast break points, they had one fast break point, one, against Virginia Tech. And that prompted Jim Beheim afterwards to say, we can't run. We can't score in transition. And we all kind of looked at that and we're like, mm, I don't know. I, th- I think maybe they can if they, you know, if, they, if they try to run. And some of it depends on how well the defense does getting back. Virginia's a pretty darn good defense in transition. Syracuse had 13 fast break points in this game. Well, and and beating them down the floor is so important. And and I think that you heard uh, Dan Dockich and Jason Benetti talk about it multiple times on on the broadcast. But they are they're good in transition, but they are so good in the half court. Oh yeah, that that you've got to beat them down the floor. You've got to get up the floor and and get some kind of look at the basket, whether that is a layup, a dunk, a three pointer. You've got to get up and down and and try and beat that defense down the floor. Much like teams try and beat the zone down the floor. You don't want to let the Syracuse zone get set up and comfortable. You want to you want to get out there and. Uh, get ahead of the defense because once you're stuck in the half court against Virginia, you're stuck in the mud. I mean, they, you saw it in regulation. They scored 23 points, uh, 43 points in regulation. Uh, you know, that, that, uh, you know, a lot of it 
against the half court when they just got stuck and, and they couldn't get what they wanted. I, I am surprised that Huff and Diakite didn't do more damage in this game. And, you know, you look at the stats, they combined for 29 points, 18 rebounds. Sounds like a lot. But when they got the ball in position to score, I mean, they were they were having their way down low with both Barama and Marek. They got them both into foul trouble. And, you know, Barama fouls out of the game. Then Marek plays, as we talked about, the last 19, 20 minutes of this game, you know, the last 14 or 15 of regulation, then the five minutes of overtime, he plays with the four fouls. I, I'm really surprised they didn't, Try to really go at him more, and and to Marek's credit, they they did go at him to some degree down the stretch of that game. He did a really nice job, not fouling, contesting, making it tough on him, and and Huff and Diakite were unable to convert on a couple of key possessions that uh, that again could have helped decide the game. I, I thought Marek was, and again that doesn't show up in the box score, contesting you know down low and not fouling, and the other guy missing that doesn't show up in the box score. But I thought he did a great job of that down the stretch. Yeah, and it's not just Marek. You know the the fact that Barama got into foul trouble early, the fact that Quincy got into foul trouble. Right away, um, the idea that they didn't keep going to Diakite and Huff was really confusing and surprising to me. You know, you you said, "Oh, well, at the end, why weren't they going at Dolja? He played twenty minutes with four fouls." You know, Quincy played a lot of minutes with four fouls too. He did. You know, Qu- Quincy played a whole lot of time where he had four fouls. Uh, you know, Barama got three fouls in the first half. Quincy and Marek too. Like they they played a long time in serious foul trouble, and and that could have been exploited much more than it was. It would have been interesting to see. Um, I'm glad we didn't see it, but it would have been interesting to see what happens if Quincy fouls out of that game. Who, who's going in? I'd imagine Jesse, right? I, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I probably. Or, um, or, because then you'd be really small with if you put Howard in. That's what I was going to say. Howard and Joe up Howard top, with Buddy and then in Buddy's the on the fort, you know, in a fort. I, I would have been curious to see because, you know, Edwards gives you size, but I just don't think he's ready to to play, you know, meaningful minutes in in the ACC and I think you probably trust Howard more to make the right play, but again you you get really small if he's in the game. So, I'm glad we didn't have to see it, but I, I I wonder I wonder what you would have done there because again, 2 weeks ago you put Robert Braswell in the game. Right. Now you can't do that. So, I well, I guess theoretically you could, could still do you could still do that, but that's that's not the plan. You're getting him closer. You're, <laughs> right. Well, you're getting him closer to that uh, that right. threshold. Dangerously wanna... close. Um, hey, here's here's a here's something that I wanted to bring up. You worried at all about this bench? I mean, like I, I know we've talked about it before, uh, but the bench went 29 minutes, uh, no shots, one point, three rebounds. That's uh, I, that's not good. No, it's not. Am I am I worried about it in what regard? That they that they just don't have anything there. Like I I know Quincy's been good recently. Quin, Quincy's been very good recently. Uh but you're you're going to need him to be consistent and he's not consistent. And you know, Howard is is far from an offensive threat and you know, it, it's not like he's a, a great defender, knows where to be. Not a great great defender. So I I just I don't and you said Je- with Jesse you and I think you nailed it like as much as I would like to see him more he's he's just not big enough and gets pushed around like I I, I don't know what they've got on this bench that's going to really help you in a game uh, well in a game like Saturday Quincy can make an impact and we and we've seen it and up until Saturday against Virginia he had been playing pretty well um 
I think you're fine, and I know this isn't a popular opinion, but I think you're fine with you've got the one guard that can come in if needed, you've got the one forward that can come in if needed, and you know that would you know you either have Barama in the middle or Marek in the middle, whoever Quincy's coming in for the you know the other guy goes out and then the other guy goes into the into the middle of that zone. I think you can get by with that. Now, what happens is when you get into foul trouble, it becomes an issue, right? So, like, Barama fouling out and Quincy teetering on fouling out, then what are you going to do? Um, I do think Bryson eventually is going to be a good player. They, It, it seems like they just, and, and by they, I mean Jim Beheim doesn't have a ton of confidence in him right now, given the way that he played during the non-conference schedule. Understandably. Um could he go in and provide some minutes if needed? You know, he's a pretty good defender. You know, could you put him in? Let's say, uh, you know, Joe twists an ankle, and you you want to be big at the top of the zone. You I think put you could, Bryson yes. in, and I I don't think he's going to kill you in there. Um, so you say, you know, are you concerned about the bench? It, it kind of is what it is, I guess. And and as long as you as you temper your expectations of what you're expecting out of the bench, I think you're expecting Quincy to make an impact, and then you're expecting Howard. To go in and give somebody a breather and not make mistakes and just and run the team and be solid. And I think if those are your expectations, then I think you're you're fine with it. If yeah. you're expecting, you know, twenty bench points, you're, you're not probably it. not getting that. No, and 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 I understand what you're saying. I, I think that you're still hoping to see it more consistently from Quincy. That's the thing that worries me, is is that he had been playing so well and, and I really thought that he made steps forward and then all of a sudden he plays nineteen minutes with no shots and Four fouls, three of them in the first half. You know, he 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 just very quickly fell into fouling people, and a lot of that, a lot of times, that's kind of being out of position on defense. All right, we do need to take a timeout. Hour number one in the books. When we return, we're going to switch gears. We're going to talk some college football, some SU football, with our good friend Stephen Bailey from Syracuse.com. Keep it here. Hour number two kicks off right after this on ESPN Radio. On Twitch, Q Sports Talk and ESPN Radio 97.7 at 100.1. This is Orange Nation with Stephen Fonte and Seth Goldberg. All right, Stephen Seth back with you on a Tuesday edition of Orange Nation. Phone lines open the rest of the way at 315-437-7644. Brought to you in part by Burdick BMW. Uh, we've spent a lot of time talking Q's football and basketball to this point in the college football national title game. We, we do need to get into the news that literally broke yesterday as we left the air. And, and that is Major League Baseball coming down awfully hard on the Houston Astros as A.J. Hinch suspended one year for his role in the sign-stealing scandal. You've got Jeff Luno, the general manager, suspended one year, and then Jim Crane, the owner of that team, comes out, fires them both. They're fined uh, $5 million as a team. They lose their... Uh, either last night or this morning, that it was orchestrated. What was orchestrating? That MLB was going to come out and hit them with the these year-long suspensions, and it was going to look really harsh because nobody knew what they were going to do. And then they, they had already known Jim Crane was ready to pull the plug on them. Like a conspiracy theory? I mean, I, mean, I guess, yeah. What, but what's wrong even if that if they knew? I mean, wouldn't, you, wouldn't it be logical that, listen, Sean Payton got suspended for a year, and he kept his job because he's Sean Payton. Wouldn't it stand to reason, though, that, that the team is going to cut ties after well, a scandal like this? And because it's football. Like, I think that there are very different mindsets. Look at the, look at the reaction to steroid suspensions in the NFL as, as opposed to the, the, the reaction to steroid suspensions in baseball. Like, baseball is much more uh, pearl-clutchy than, than yeah. football is. It's still a year without your coach, though. But, he, you know, it's Sean Payton. Okay, fine. You take your I mean, punishment. A.J. Hinch, Hinch took him to a couple World Series. 
Jeff Luno, I, Jeff Luno built that team, built that team into what it is. Like they were terrible. I, I understand that, but you know, this, this does come down to like the lack of institutional control that we see in the NCAA. And you know, when Sean Payton says I didn't know about it, I believe Sean Payton didn't know about it. AJ Hinch, to me, it's a little bit of a sketchier situation. Um, if I asked you, do you think AJ Hinch knew about this and didn't didn't act? I mean, don't we feel pretty confident that of course he, he knew about it? Yeah, I mean, so, it's, it's in the report that he broke TVs right, because he felt bad. Right. So I feel confident saying that the situations are different. I, I feel confident saying Sean Payton didn't know, um, but I, I think A.J. Hinch did. And and so I, I think the Astros really had no other choice but to fire those guys. I think the Red Sox absolutely, now that the precedent has been set, there's no choice but to fire Alex Cora. I, I mentioned this to you during the break when, when we were talking to our Twitch viewers the the interesting situation I think is is with the Mets and Carlos Beltran because you know Rob Manfred called out in particular one player yesterday in that report and it was Carlos Beltran and pointed to him as he was the ringleader of this whole thing and he will not get punished or at least you know MLB at, at this point it doesn't sound like they plan to punish any players now he's in a position of authority he is now the manager of the New York Mets so if you're the Mets and you've seen what the Astros have done you're you're going to see what the Red Sox are going to do i don't think there's any question cora is gone there has to be you know you Je- have to get jeff passan brought this up today to on ESPN radio he said what do you, what do you do if you're the Mets do you really want to be the one team that is holding on to a guy that is attached to this and they are in a tough spot because Major League Baseball most likely is not going to punish Carlos Beltran. But if you're the Mets, do you do the right thing, quote unquote, and cut ties with him and and get a fresh start? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that you're in in a similar spot where you have to. And uh, you know, he was implicated but not punished because he's a play. He was a player, and baseball didn't want to set the precedent of punishing a player for this for some reason. I don't know why. I I would have punished him. You know, I, I think that you have to if 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 you find people. That are that heavily involved and still in the game, punish them. You have jurisdiction over them. I, I think I think they should get rid of them. But again, as you know, as you said during the break, the Mets don't always do the, the logical right thing. thing. Yeah, but I, I think they need to cut ties. I think they need to move on because it, it's just it's a bad look to be the one team that's that's holding on to a guy that was implicated in this whole thing. And and you also said during the break that. You know, everybody around the league is doing this, and and everybody's trying to get an advantage. And my response to you was, not everybody's smashing trash cans. Like, there was a memo that came out. Major League Baseball released a memo in the fall of 2017 and said, do not do this. Do not use video replay to steal signs. That's essentially what they said. And if you do it, there are going to be repercussions. And then the Astros did it anyway. They kept doing it after that memo was released. And then the Red Sox did it the last year anyway. Um not everybody was smashing trash cans. Not everybody went to the same length. So I, I think the the punishment is appropriate. I don't think there's any room in the game for that. And I, I think we saw the league send an appropriate message that hopefully will eliminate this kind of thing moving forward. Just to make the comparison back to Bounty Gate, when a whole bunch of coaches got uh, suspended and and uh, you know I, I don't even remember what Greg Williams Greg got. Williams, yeah. What what he get? Indefinite two he, years. He was definitely out of the league that year. Um, I, I would have to look. I'll look while, like, while you're finishing okay, your thought there. So, um, Greg Williams is coaching again. He is, and has been for a couple of years now. And like, I I think that this is insane. Like, I can't imagine. I I cannot. I, I can't believe that people hired him after after what he is alleged to have run and done. And again, you can argue. Okay, fine. A lot of people did it. That doesn't make it any better that that they were. You know playing a scheme to to go and, and get guys hurt. So 
I'm surprised that people hire him. You think these guys work again? And it, and it kind of goes to what I said before about the culture in baseball versus the culture in in football. Um, like I I don't I don't think that these guys are going to get jobs again. You know, I don't, I don't think that these guys are going to get the jobs that they had, necess- especially. Greg Williams is back at the same place he was. I know. Before I know. that. And, then, um, and and immediately was back at the same place. Like, like A.J. Hinch isn't going to miss out and then come back in three years and be a manager again. No. I And my, my guess is it's going to be a long time. If we ever see A.J. Hinch as a manager again, it's going to be a, a long time. Um, I'm just looking up the Greg Williams thing. He was suspended indefinitely. Um... He was reinstated a year later and then worked for the Titans in 2013. So So he missed two seasons? He was suspended by the NFL for the 2012 season. And he he coached in the 2013 season. He was reinstated a year later. So he worked for the Titans in 2013. So if if I'm reading this correctly, he, he missed the same amount of time Sean Payton did. He missed one year and immediately got back to where he was. Sean Payton missed one year and he immediately went back to where he was. The assistant coaches who were filling in for Sean Payton, remember that the guy they wanted to make the interim coach was also suspended? So they had to make an interim interim coach? Every one of them ended up right back where they were. Like, I don't think that's going to happen in baseball. Yeah, he just missed the one year. That's amazing. Missed the one season and then came back in 2013. How do people hire him? As you said, different mentality in football. He's a good football coach, right? Recycle the coaches. Recycle the coaches. We see it. Remember, we see a, it every year. He had eleven head coaching offers. Come on, he did some of them. He didn't even have to interview. They were just going to give him the job. All right, we do need to take a timeout. We've got today's business on the other side of the break. Phone lines remain open for the rest of the way at three one five four three seven seventy six forty four. Back after this on ESPN Radio.